The following program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. The hysteria over arugula or heirloom tomatoes, the explosion of farmers' markets, the desire to meet face-to-face each week with the person who grew your nourishment goes deeper than the food. It may just be part of a desperate longing to have some connection to the real world. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the Bioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. Farming has reached a fork in the road, literally. What we put on our collective fork and how we grow our food to feed our six billion and counting selves are going to be among the most decisive factors for the fate of the earth. Why? Because agriculture is the world's biggest business and the single greatest destroyer of the environment. Today, a global transformation to ecologically beneficial and socially equitable farming practices is gaining ground. Almost a quarter of U.S. shoppers now buy organic, foods grown without toxic chemicals. It's a market that continues to grow at 20% a year. And this movement, which only got going in earnest in the late 60s, has already moved beyond just organic to include many other values. Growing standards that actually restore the land, an emphasis on locally grown foods, and fair trade that compensates growers with a bigger piece of the action. This blossoming movement also honors farm worker rights and the humane treatment of animals. The signs are everywhere. The $430 billion food service industry is getting on board. Large-scale hospital systems like Kaiser Permanente are purchasing more local and organic foods. Or the Department of Defense, whose FRESH program by 2004 was already buying $72 million worth of food from in-state small family farmers. Or the 700 school systems across the United States that now have farm-to-cafeteria programs. More and more colleges are purchasing local and organic foods, and students are faking IDs to get into these desirable cafeterias. And of course, since 1994, the number of farmers' markets has doubled to over 3,600. People, meet your farmer. Join us for the next half hour as we explore a fork in the road. Make friends with a farmer, with farmer, author, and changemaker Michael Abelman. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Michael Abelman has been instrumental in planting the fork in the road that is now guiding the mushrooming movement for a healthy, just, and ecologically sustainable food system. He's not only a farmer with an emerald thumb, he is a visionary leader, organizer, and educator. 
His Center for Urban Agriculture in Santa Barbara, California, is a dramatic success story of a community-based urban farm and educational center. But in 1969, who knew? All Michael Abelman knew was that he was finding out how much he loved the land and loved farming. Michael Abelman spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. Close to 35 years ago, I joined a commune in Southern California that was based on agrarian principles. We had three different parcels of land totaling some 4,000 acres on which we raised row crops, orchards, operated a complete cow and goat dairy, and produced grain and fiber. We supplied our own natural food stores and bakery and juice factory and restaurant, as well as feeding ourselves. We even made our own clothing, backpacks, and shoes. After only four months living in that community, I was given the responsibility of managing the 100-acre pear and apple orchard located in a high desert valley east of Ojai, California. At the time, this was just one of a handful of commercial orchards in the country that was farmed organically. And here I was at the age of 18, with no orcharding experience, having never managed anything, directing a crew of 30 people, most of whom were older than I. The orchard had been abandoned for 15 years. The branches between the trees had become so intertwined that you couldn't find the alleys down the middles of the rows. I had a 1930s copy of Modern Fruit Science, the journal from the guy who ran the place the year before and gave up in frustration, and a copy of Goethe's famous quote, Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it attached to the door of my 20-foot unheated trailer. Now, this could have ended up really bad, and under most similar situations, I probably would have ended up working in some high-rise office building. But there was something that took place down those rows of apple and pear trees, something very different than what is happening in most agricultural fields and orchards in North America. I went to work each day with 30 of my friends, And while we worked, we joked and we talked and we discussed our dreams. We tried out our latest theories and philosophies on each other, speculated on the fate of the earth, and ate our lunch together under the shade of the trees. In the winter, we pruned every day for four months straight. In the spring, we thinned fruit. And in the fall, it was a 10-week harvest marathon. It was repetitive work. But at the end of each day, instead of feeling I had been chained to some mind-numbing drudgery, I felt like I had attended an all-day party. The work got done, the orchard thrived, and those apples and pears gained a reputation around the country. And while the cold nights and hot days of that high desert provided ideal growing conditions, I am sure that that fruit was equally infused with the energy of that group of people and the pleasure they found in each other and in that land. Now this was my introduction to agriculture. This community experience has informed all of my agricultural endeavors since. It demonstrated that good food is more than just about the confluence of technique and fertile soil, that it is the result of men and women who love their land and who bring great passion to working with it. That experience was my preview into the new agrarian movement that is now sweeping the country, a movement that I believe embodies many of the most critical and crucial elements of a healthy society, reverence, 
mystery, humility, ecology in its wider sense, and community. Michael Abelman has had a farmer's eye view of this new agrarian movement that is growing across North America. Over three decades after his introduction to this movement, he decided he needed to undertake a farmer's odyssey of sorts. He took a cross-country journey to get an update, to record not just what's currently happening on the ground, but in the ground. He recorded his remarkable journey in a book, Fields of Plenty. In the Fields of Plenty book and companion film, he celebrates new breeds of farmers and their connection to the land and to community across the United States and Canada. He portrays an honorable profession that is a fine art and superb craft. He profiles farmers who have already gone far beyond organic, who are using their farms as platforms for education and social and ecological change. He calls what he uncovered on his journey a quiet revolution of folks who are happily married to a place. Here he presents five of those farming folk he encountered. First are Richard DeWild and his partner Linda, who farm a couple of hours outside of Madison, Wisconsin. Again, Michael Abelman. Richard drives us around in his Chevy pickup to check out some of the 39 fields of vegetables that are scattered around the valley. There's a case of 30-08 Springfield silver tip rifle cartridges sitting next to the four-wheel drive shift, a bag of tobacco and some rolling papers, and a single Cipollini onion sitting on the seat. I don't normally get all gaga about kale, but the field we're looking at is as deep a green as anything I've ever seen. Not the kind of artificially pumped up rank green that comes from too much ammonium nitrate or urea. This one is deep and blue and forest-like. The plants are vibrant and well-formed with huge turgid leaves, each plant standing up straight as if they've been told to pose for my cameras. Richard tells me he gets snapshots in the mail of someone's kid eating a piece of their squash or corn or a carrot. There's an enclosed note that says that this is Johnny's first meal. Eighteen years later, and they're providing the food for Johnny's wedding. At the market, his customers will introduce their kids to our farmer. There's these beaming kids standing there that have been raised on his food. Born in Idaho, raised in potato fields, Gene Thiel comes from four generations of root people. Ask any chef or farmer's market regular in Portland, Oregon, where they get their potatoes, and they'll tell you matter-of-factly from the potato man. Thiel farms at 4,600 feet in the mountains of eastern Oregon, taking advantage of a perfect convergence of ideal potato conditions, a blend of high elevation, deep glacial soils, clean and abundant fresh water, and low humidity. It's rewarding to go to restaurants and markets and find people who really appreciate what you're growing, Gene reflects. It's fundamental. We need that sustenance, that connection, that completion. When you produce a product and they see its value, it's like searing truth. They taste that truth. It's the ultimate compliment. Everything at Stratford Dairy in Vermont is run on gravity. The milk moves downhill from the milking barn to the cooling tanks, then on to the bottling and ice cream rooms without the use of a single pump. When the pastures were cleared, trees were left strategically, so that as the shade moves across the pasture, so will the cows. At first, I marvel at these simple innovations. Then I realize it doesn't exactly require a master's degree in industrial design. 
to figure out that using gravity is a good idea, or that trees provide shade and that cows will follow. It's just that so much of agriculture has lost any relationship to common sense. We've got this idea that things need to be complicated to be any good, that simple solutions can't possibly be as good as technological ones. Earl Ransom runs the 30-cal Guernsey dairy herd, selling milk in glass bottles just like the milkman used to drop off in front of my house when I was growing up. The farm also produces premium ice cream made with the eggs from older brother Barry. Of all the things I'd like to give my boys, I want them to be able to die as old men on this land, Earl's wife Amy tells me. I also want them to be respectful. I want to make pickles. And I want to personally eliminate all the flies from this farm with my swatter. <laughs> Farmer John Thurman chuckles as he tells me, we're sure not keeping up with the Joneses, nodding towards the three rusting 20-foot trailers that house he and his wife Ida and their seven children. At night, we gather outside to talk. I take out one of my harmonicas to entertain the kids and begin to blow a slow blues in the key of G. All right. I don't, <laughs> right. You don't want that. Ida rolls her eyes with pleasure. When I play the final note, she tells me that it reminds her of her roots in Mississippi and the old timers who used to sit around telling stories and playing music. Considering the poverty that exists here, I am amazed to discover how much of John and Ida's time and energy goes into community projects. Teaching local youth how to grow food, providing fresh vegetables to seniors, organizing a black farmer's cooperative. John describes the farm as nothing special, just a group of hard-working people trying to make something beautiful. Each week, John and Ida and their kids trek into Chicago to sell collards and sweet potatoes and beans and melons and pasture-raised chicken to the all-black Austin Farmer's Market in a neighborhood that does not have a single grocery store. Financial struggle does not stop the Thurmans from living their values of community service, of compassionate connection, of generosity. To them, their farm may be nothing special, but to the local youth, seniors, and the all-African-American farmer's market in Chicago, they're very special. And as Michael Abelman well knows, not all farming takes place in the countryside. Around the world, urban farming is a major source of food and of a different kind of nourishment in inner cities. Just ask farmer Ken Dunn. Ken Dunn farms in the city of Chicago in the shadow of Cabrini Green, the 16-story, prison-styled, wired-covered housing project built in the 50s to warehouse the city's poor and unemployed. Dunn's two one-acre plots boast 30 varieties of heirloom tomatoes, striped German, brandywine, green zebra, black Russian, growing in the composted remains of rejected apple and cherry pie filling and the uneaten arugula salads and filet mignons from local high-end restaurants. Five tons of compost made from Chicago's waste has been laid down over this site, just a fraction of the 15,000 tons of urban waste that is disposed of in this city each and every day. The ground feels like a sponge, and if I close my eyes and plug my ears, it would feel as if I was walking on the floor of some virgin forest. The tomatoes don't seem to mind the constant noise or bad air or the poverty that surrounds their little island. 
The plants are tall and robust and absolutely loaded. Their world is rich in nutrients, reflected warmth and light from pavement and buildings, and the attentions given to them by local chefs, who are thrilled to tell their clientele that the tomatoes on the menu were harvested down the street. This new agrarian movement creates the experience of the floor of a virgin forest even in the blight of the inner city. What else beckoned Michael Abelman on the horizon he chased in his odyssey into this quiet revolution of folks married to a place? More when we return. You're listening to A Fork in the Road, Make Friends with a Farmer. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. There's more from Michael Abelman at our website. To download a free podcast, visit the radio pages at Bioneers.org. The new agrarian movement Michael Abelman chronicled in his book and film Fields of Plenty also has deep roots in many cultures. Like seeds, its farmers also migrate and take root in new places. One of these is Hilario Alvarez, who originally came to the U.S. from Mexico, bearing other traditions and other aesthetics. Michael Abelman. Hilario Alvarez slipped over the border into the U.S. 20 years ago to work in America's fields. He had nothing. Now he owns his own farm and employs over 100 people. Alvarez's pepper field is like an out-of-control block party. (laughs) Eighty-five varieties, many of his own selections, are thrown together in an eight-acre burlesque of color and shape. There is humor in this field a former migrant statement on the ultra-linear, monocultural, totally predictable fields of America's industrial agriculture. I tell Ilario he is crazy, that I've never seen anything like this before, that he should quit harvesting peppers and open the field up as a seasonal museum. I imagine docents giving tours, stopping along the rows to discuss the history and culture and use of certain varieties, the arrangement of color and shape, what the farmer was going through in his life when he planted this section or that, (laughs) as if they are standing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art analyzing a Matisse or a Van Gogh. An out-of-control block party, a seasonal museum worthy of Van Gogh or Matisse, a personal history encoded in colors and shapes, the natural history of a life lived on the land. But that picture is not the picture of how most people have been treating the land. Michael Abelman, who now farms on rich land in Canada's fertile British Columbia, recently got a rude reminder. I took my three-year-old son Benjamin out to a friend's cabin located on the west coast of Vancouver Island. We left the farm and hopped on the ferry in good spirits, the guys out for a little three-day adventure. What I didn't realize was that to get there required driving through a huge relatively fresh clear-cut. Now, I've seen a lot of ecological devastation, but there is nothing quite so exemplary of humans' most destructive ways as a rich, diverse, life-giving, oxygen-producing forest reduced to vast fields of stumps and brush and eroding soil. 
the emotional impact of being in the middle of such a thing for an extended period of time is overwhelming. And little Benjamin was glued to the scene, looking out the windows of the truck with the most heartbreaking look of horror and dismay. And I felt like I had just unknowingly taken my young son to see a really violent film. And when it came time to drive home after our little retreat, Benjamin cried. He pleaded with me not to drive back the same way we had come. Now, why is a word that you hear a lot with a three-year-old? But there was a new persistence to Benjamin's why after our experience that day. And my responses could not satisfy. I find myself asking why a lot these days as well. But I cannot find answers when my questions stray too far beyond my own land and the community in which I live. Why is a word we should all be asking of ourselves and of those who claim to be our leaders. What if after the events on 9-11, America had asked why instead of who? What if we could ask why in regards to the recent hurricane? As we bear witness to the disappearance of nature and the disconnection of our society from it, we also see an increase in confusion, an extreme lack of compassion and understanding for how to take care of each other and for our world, a loss of understanding in regards to cause and effect. It takes a real conscious effort to rise above the propaganda and the lies, the litany of misdirected questions. Step out of the confusion and be like little Benjamin. Come back into our beginner's mind, to our sense of childlike wonder, and start asking why as honestly, as freshly, and as persistently as a three-year-old. And I believe that to deal with the great unraveling that is taking place around us, we've got to come back home, immerse ourselves in that which goes on in our own backyards and in our own communities and on the land that we farm. We can feel paralyzed by the broader world scene, but we have enormous power in and around the places where we live. It doesn't really matter what the issue is, energy, water, food, waste, transportation, or even that pervasive sense of loneliness or disconnection that so many folks are feeling. When you focus your attention on the local world in which you live, when you come back home, real change is possible. Real change is possible. As Michael Abelman learned so vividly from John and Ida Thurman and their community-based farm outside Chicago, farming, he found, is about a lot more than we usually think it is. Farmer John Thurman told me, if you farmed, you can run the world. Now, I thought about that and about what it means to be a leader. And I realized how few leaders there really are. We've got plenty of managers and legislators, actors and dictators and manipulators. But I'm talking about leaders, folks that have compassion, respect for diversity, creative vision, an understanding of our true place in nature. I wonder how it happened that lies and deception and obfuscation, greed and thievery and murder could have become the dominant characteristics required for government office. So who are we going to be able to seek out to guide a society 
that has become so completely disconnected from the natural world, from the most fundamental necessities such as food and water? What will happen if there are more Katrinas? What will happen when the oil runs out? I think John Thurman may be right. In a time when our primary connection tools are the computer and the cell phone, those who have maintained an intimate connection with the land, whose daily work is inextricably connected to biology and botany and animal husbandry, those who know how to restore and nurture soil, care for animals, coax food from the earth, may become very important to all of us. The hysteria over arugula or heirloom tomatoes, the explosion of farmers' markets, the desire to meet face-to-face each week with the person who grew your nourishment goes deeper than the food. It may just be part of a desperate longing to have some connection to the real world. And I've watched chefs receive mythical rock and roll status. I think it's time that farmers receive that same attention. So I strongly encourage each of you to make friends with a farmer. You're going to need them. For I am certain as the current global industrial experiment, and that it is, comes apart, our society will once again have agriculture at its center. On his journey across North America, Michael Abelman found agriculture at a fork in the road. He found farmers who are growing wondrous food, but who are also growing a future of reverence for the earth, of humility before all that lives. Growing a future of both lands and people enriched by diversity. In quiet, open air, readers of the soil, tuned to the weather, each connected to the history, the sun, moon, and seasons of a specific place, farmers carry rare wisdom. These farmers offer a taste of the truth. So pick up that fork and make friends with a farmer. A fork in the road. Make friends with a farmer. To find the latest resources related to this program or to order a copy of this show, visit Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. Practical solutions and social innovations for our most pressing environmental and social challenges can also be found online at Bioneers.org. Choose from articles, news releases, blogs, event calendars, books, CDs, podcasts, and DVDs. You can learn more about the Bioneers through their annual conference by becoming a member. To register and join online, go to Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production assistants, Jenny McGinn and Marita Prandoni. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Conference Recording Service. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Earthwork Music at www.earthworkmusic.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. 
The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. This is program number 0707. This program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.